Okay. Uh, where do I begin? Uh, yeah, so. This episode was directed by Judd Taylor. He does a good job with it, as he usually does. He's actually probably my favorite season three director, not counting the regulars who have since passed out of the show. Um, uh, so this was written by David Gerald, who worked on Trouble with Tribbles and iMud, and Oliver Crawford, who worked on Galileo 7 and Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. But that's actually a lie. I had to do some digging on this one because we had a few accounts, but actually for once these accounts didn't conflict, they just filled in different parts of the puzzle. See, the actual writer for this episode was Margaret Arm? Oh, shoot. Does this help me pronounce that? Armen. Margaret Armen. Now, she was someone that Friedberger was actually trying to coach to be his new story editor to replace Arthur Singer for season four. You know, the one that never happened. <sighs> let, me, let me talk about the original story first. I've got a big old quote up here for Mr. Gerald. It was intended as a parable between the haves and the have-nots. The haves being the elite who are removed from the realities of everyday life, live in their floating cities. The have-nots were called manis for manual labor and were forced to live on the surface of the planet where the air was denser, pressure was higher, noxious gas made the conditions prime generally unlivable. The manis torn between two leaders, one militant and one more of a Martha Luther King figure. This was written... Um, and designed before the assassination, but was still being worked on after. So, pretty much right at the same time, uh, within a few months at the very least. In the original version, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and Uhura were captured by the Mannies when their shuttlecraft was shot down by a missile. The Enterprise desperately needed the Dilithium Crystals. This planet was one of the Federation's biggest suppliers, and Kirk's primary concern is re restore the flow of crystals. He's just here for the industry. He doesn't care about who works in the mines, he just cares about the supplies not interrupted. The shuttlecraft was necessary because I felt the crystals would be too dense for the transporter. Interesting idea. In the process of the story, Kirk realizes the, un the living conditions for the manis, unless the living conditions for the manis are improved, the situation can never be stabilized. Because Uhura was injured in the crash, McCoy treats her in a Manny hospital. However, he is appalled at the condition of the other parent patients there. Sorry, I, I should increase the font size. It's hard to read this. Especially the children suffering from high-pressure disease. He begins treating them as well. Meanwhile, Kirk and Spock have convinced their captors to let them go up to the Sky City to negotiate. The story focused primarily on the lack of communication between the Skymen and the Mannies. Kirk's resolution of the problem is to force the two sides into negotiation, open channels of communication with the literal phaser in his hand. You sit there, you sit there, now talk. And that's all he does. He doesn't solve the problem itself. He provides the tools whereby the combatants can seek their own solutions, a far more moral procedure. However, in the end, as the Enterprise breaks orbit, Kirk remarks on this as if inaugurating the problem-solving procedure as, it's, as if it's the same as solving the problem. He pats himself on the back and says, we got them talking, it's just a matter of time until they find the right direction. McCoy, who is standing right next to him, looks at him and says, yes, but how many children will die in the meantime? The answer is not a facile one. The viewer is meant to be left as uneasy as Kirk is. In the telecast version, the whole problem was caused by the gas, and if we could just get all of them to wear gas masks, they'll be happy and pick all of the minerals that we need. Somehow I think something is lost in translation. So there's the direct quote. And that's the, the original treatise that the two of them came up with. Now i got to share another quote. This is from Margaret Armen. Check this out. The reason I ultimately did the teleplay is Freddie Friedberger called me in and said he had two writers, didn't tell me who, and he had gotten this story from. He said, I don't want you to look at the teleplay because it doesn't work. It's all philosophizing and talk. We need something with action. 
It's a good basic theme and a good basic story, and we're going to tell you the basic story. From that, we want you to start from scratch and do a scene breakdown and hopefully a teleplay. All they told me was that part of a society was living on the surface of a planet in great... Part of the society was living on the surface of the planet in great luxury, and the larger part of the society was down in the caves working like slaves and kept that way. As I say, I never saw David Gerald's screenplay or Oliver Crawford's rewrite, so I don't know if it was static and I didn't work. I wondered how in the world I could build action into this philosophical notion. That's why I added the gas in the caves, which numbed the minds of the people so they appeared to be stupid. I told the story against the background of Rebellion, in which Kirk and Spock became involved, and it worked that way. For all I know, the first draft of the story until it may have been even more acceptable than mine, but mine happened to be what the producer wanted. I don't want to fling mud at Friedberger, but I have disagreed with so many of this man's decisions. Allow me to add another one to the list. I discovered in the research of this episode a quote from Friedberger, where he mentioned that he was concerned that the audience would not be able to follow certain events unless they had narration telling them what was going on. Now, if that sounds familiar, then you've watched Sins. Narration! Ding! But in all seriousness, I do feel like narration is a little bit of a plague on Hollywood. And let me be clear, I mean that sincerely. I think narration is one of those things that's become a completely common bog-standard method by which to try and get across quick and dirty exposition and is almost universally used wrongly or boringly. At wor excuse me, at best, narration tends to be completely unnecessary and actively detracts from a work. Now that is my opinion, and there are exceptions, obviously. But this Fight Club, there's an exception I can think of right off the top of my head. But the problem is that exact attitude that he posits here is the exact attitude that I fight against, right? And I could give you three examples. In this episode, Spock narrates his own thoughts back in, oh, I wrote down the name of the episode, the Paradise Syndrome, because there's like two episodes of Paradise and I always get their names confused. In Paradise Syndrome, Kirk narrates his stuff, and in Lights of Zetar, there was narration about Kirk and his concerns about Scotty. Now, <laughs> I want to be clear about this. Spock and his worries about the the social struggle here, Kirk and his delight at being happy on the planet, and Kirk and trying to exposit the fact that Scotty is in love, or in love, rather, with uh, Mira, or whatever her name was. These are the things that it was believed that we wouldn't be able to figure out on our own. And now you see the problem with narration. <sighs> Anyways, so the episode starts... Um, the the cloud people have no violence. They're intellectual. They study art, and actually, I gotta give them credit. They did a pretty decent job on the effects of the the cloud city in both versions. And it it is admittedly hard to get excited about. It. I mean, floating cities are cool, but we have spaceships. So then Spock gets ambushed, despite the fact that not only that he has excellent hearing, but it's mentioned in this episode that he has excellent hearing. By the way, I'm not going to list every issue with the plot or the script, but there are quite a few. It's all nitpicks, it's all little stuff, but you can just see errors all over the place. Like, picture a road that's been recently paved, and there's just cracks and holes all over the place. They're all small, but if you're looking at the road, you can see them, right? You just look at that like... And I, again, I don't blame any of the three writers on this one because this is clearly just a mess. One person put forth a script that he was then forced to co-opt with someone else 
on, on treachery of being removed from the project, by the way. Uh, I, I didn't mention that part. Or not treachery, on threat. On threat of being removed from the project. And then a completely new writer was brought in and said, hey, take the idea and write a script out of it. The only thing Friedberger's ever said about this episode, by the way, and I looked up a quote of his on this, is that he was pissed off that David Gerald never said thank you for the fact that Friedberger fought for the fact that he would get writer's credit. This is one of the reasons why I'm not treating Friedberger as, say, Rick Berman, someone who demonstrably and, and, and definitively makes Star Trek worse by his interactions and is kind of a dick about it. Friedberger seemed to at least be trying, just... You know. Anyways. <clears throat> so then we have a fight. Not a bad fight, actually. The main problem is the fact that it focuses too much on individuals and their kind of interactions, and it takes a little bit too long. But okay, we have a fight, sure. Then we hear that they have demands. What are those demands? Well, they're completely unreasonable. Remember that. I'm going to come back to that. We also find out that these people are members of the Federation. And Kirk and Spock, Spock, I remind you, who has ridiculous memory and has a... Okay, let me rewind a second. I've always had a headcanon that whenever they're going to a new area, Spock bothers to read up on it, right? Like, pulls up the Wikipedia page and peruses it, and he's Spock, so he retains that stuff. This would probably explain why he tends to know relevant information in almost every episode of the entire series, right? Because he looked it up knowing that he was going to be dealing with it. Now, that doesn't explain every instance, but it's always been kind of how I presumed that. Regardless, Spock knows nothing about the situation here. Spock knows nothing about the situation here. The Federation apparently knows nothing about the situation here. Also, the Federation is apparently totally cool with having a membership society that is a very clear caste system, at best, and outright slavery at worst. And apparently the Federation is okay with these people, um... not being members of the Federation... <laughs> What I mean by that is they don't act as if they're members of the Federation. They act as if they are a planet who has, like, a trade deal. And you have no right... Spock even later says... Oh, where is it? I wrote it down, wrote it down. He will be well within his rights to execute you for ignoring his orders as ruler of the local planet. What? <laughs> what? There's also the the fact that he's uh, he, he threatens them and mentions... Uh, just let, let me let me keep going. So we have the haves, and then we have the have-nots. Okay, yep, I'm with that. How are the elite in power? How are the haves in power? Now, the answer given by the episode, excuse me, the answer that's never given by the episode, that is presumed by me, is that it's because the have-nots are stupid because of the gas. Okay. Usually there's some kind of something, a control device, better weapons, better equipment, better training, something that keeps you know the elite in power. Either way, there's this guy who is going to be interrogated, and naturally his reaction to this is to leap over the edge. Damn. That, uh, that says a lot about what happens later. So Kirk... <sighs> so far this episode has just been kind of okay. Now the episode actually drifts into what I consider to be bad territory. First of all, uh, Vanna approaches Kirk to try and assassinate him. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. That was just a commercial break thing. Da, da, da. So that irritates me, and it's immediately resolved. But it's okay, because she was just going to take him hostage, because he's clearly here to intimidate them into submission, no matter how many times he says otherwise, and the fact that he, if he actually got his crap, he would leave. And the only thing keeping him from getting his crap is them. So 
there's no sense whatsoever in why she thinks this. If she thought something along the lines of, oh, well, the Federation is just part of the oppression, which is actually true, then yeah, okay, I could buy that. You know, it's, it's, the, it's like it was in the original script. It's um, ignorance of the plight of a member world leading to tacit, or not tacit, um, implied approval of, of the situation of the caste and the slavery and blah, blah, blah. So that's messed up. But no, instead she insists that, ah, meanwhile, meanwhile, check this out, Spock is talking about Pon Far with Droxine. What? Now, I hate to bang on this point, but this is straight-up character assassination right here. No, really. Ponfar is such a deeply, immensely personal thing that even in TOS, even if we ignore future works, the Federation, the medical base, Starfleet, were not even aware of it existing. Because Spock very clearly emphasized how deeply personal a thing this was and how much he does not talk about it. Kirk had to twist his arm off to finally get him to confess what happened. And Kirk, in reaction to realizing how deeply personal and shameful of a thing this was to Spock, never talked about it. Even to the threat of his own career, never talked about it. Spock is just casually mentioning this to Droxine. In the Nitpicker's Guide, there's this recurring gag in... Uh, basically in all of Season 3, because Spock will periodically do things that are either stupid or out of character in Season 3. And the current gag is, it's okay, his brain didn't get hooked up right back in Spock's brain. <laughs> it does explain a lot. But no, this is straight-up character assassination. If we are to take the greater bounds of Trek into account, this makes even less sense, because even in the future, way in the future, there's still a lack of knowledge and information about Ponfar, and it's still this deeply personal blah, 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 blah. Right? So, this is then, just to add to the weirdness, this is then cut periodically between shots of him, excuse me, of Kirk fighting with Vana to Spock talking about Ponfar with, with Droxine. I don't even begin to know what they're going for with that. Kirk keeps bringing up this plague, and with good reason. The plague is the ticking clock. That's how we have the action. It's totally unnecessary to the episode. I wish it was just ejected entirely. It is a dumb thing to make this into a personal goal rather than a dilemma episode. This is a dilemma episode, by the way. The dilemma is fixing the situation of inequality on the planet. But the inclusion of that plague means, by definition, whatever we do is just kind of always tainted with that knowledge and information, and it's used inappropriately, I think. Also, this is, what, the fifth or sixth plague that's just going to wipe out a planet? What is with the Federation? Anyways, I'm getting off topic. Droxine comes up with terrible arguments to try and argue for the status quo being maintained. And this leads me to something that really irritates me about this episode, even more, well, in addendum to all the other things I've already mentioned. Droxine. I'm not even going to comment on her outfit. I am leaving that completely alone. No, she is... How do I put this? How do I put this without shoving my foot into my mouth as hard as I possibly can? Let, let me talk about her dad by comparison, okay? I think that's how we'll do this. So, we have this thing. She says there's no violence immediate jump cut to Vana being tortured. Because physical discomfort is extremely persuasive, Captain. Actually, no, it isn't. 
And then there's a line, they are inferior species. And I actually wrote in my notes, why are these people Federation members? Then there's the whole repeat interference with the planet's government. Again, why are these people Federation members? But hang on, check this out. I rewound and rewatched the whole torture scene. And it was torturous, but I wanted to get this out here. Let's talk about her dad. I don't even remember his name, and I don't care. So first, I'm going to ask a question. When that doesn't work, I'm going to torture you to get the answer. When questioned about that, I'm going to say it's necessary. After all, we're in a hurry for that plague. When questioned about that, I say, well, it's okay. Torture's fine. There's nothing wrong with torture. When uh, po posed, pushed about the issue, about saying torture isn't okay, well, I say, well, I mean, why even spare her life? After all, if you do so, you're going to risk that planet. After all, they aren't us, and they are inferior. This then leads to uh, not, some of them, some of them can understand abstracts if they're trained. And when, now you notice, I haven't been doing the back and forth, but each one of these, Kirk is just destroying his arguments completely. And so this is him going down the argument chain. You've probably noticed some of these arguments used in real life here or there, and to equally bad effect, because they're not arguments. There's just someone trying to justify a position. That leads to threat of violence. When threat of violence doesn't work, he says, why do you even care? Why do you care about this? This then leads to threat of legal action. And finally, this leads to the order to kill Kirk on sight. Right. Following this, later on in the episode, he insists that the best possible method is to kill all of the troglodytes, if necessary. And when, mentioned, when talked about this, he mentions that doing so, what Kirk represents, what is so dangerous about him, is he, thre he will threatens to destroy our power and society. And then she forbids, he, excuse me, forbids his daughter to even think about Kirk. Now, what kind of bigot is that? Well, that's a straight-up fascist, isn't it? I know fascism doesn't have a direct de definition, but you get the point, right? That is a classic, greedy, fat cat, evil, elitist prick. This is not an obstructive bureaucrat. This is not an obstinate bureaucrat. This guy's just a dick. And evil. It's okay, he gets to keep his position and gets no negative consequences at the end of the episode. This is how I can then explain his daughter. She buys into all the propaganda without the evil behind it. Whatever you want to call that, I'm sure you could come up with a word. I'm trying to avoid specific wordings because unlike certain other topics that I've mentioned uh, back in Mark of Gideon, this is still a controversial topic. But what she is is someone who doesn't really have the malice behind her, but is still demonstrably bigoted is still just as wrong as her dad in her mindset of how she is viewing the inequality and how she is actively defending it. She actively defends it for the overwhelming majority of the episode. By the way, towards the end of the episode, you'll notice the episode goes way out of its way to try to make her not the bad guy. In my opinion, it fails miserably. But nowhere more than at the very end, where she says, I'm going to go live in the mines. No, you're not. <laughs> give me a freaking break she then immediately follows this up by saying that I wish I could go to Vulcan someday lady you are a Federation member 
going to Vulcan is is going to another place within the Federation is kind of like going from one spot in the EU to the other spot in the EU. And I know that's not actually that cut and dry because I know there's like seven or eight different zones of connection within the EU. But you get the point. There there are parts of the EU which are specifically designed so you don't need a passport to go from one country to the other, right? It, it, let me use a simpler example. It's like going from one state in the United States to another state. You just drive or walk or whatever or fly. There's no border patrol. There's no guard with a gate saying, let me see your ID. No, you just go there. You, lady, you could just go to Vulcan. You could probably get on board the Enterprise right now if you really wanted to. So he's a monster, and she's whatever word you want to use there. This then leads to the Xenite gas. They're biologically and mentally inferior, but they're the exact same. Now, at first, I was like, oh my god, please tell me the episode isn't literally saying that they're an inferior race. But no, it's, it's, it's the gas. We have, we have our, <laughs> we have our uh, scapegoat, basically. We have the easy-to-solve dilemma. Because all of a sudden, this goes from being this big... Because up until the gas reveal, the whole episode has been an actually decently constructed dilemma. There's been some terrible character moments, and the, the characters that are supposed to be seen as positive are not. But at least there's a decent dilemma underneath that. As soon as the Xenite gas is introduced, the dilemma goes away. This is why the episode then shifts focus radically from being a dilemma to being a threat. You notice that, right? As sh it, it, it kind of bounces back and forth. It's still a dilemma episode. But the moment they have the answer and the gas masks, the episode's solved. So they reach out to whatever jackass's name, and they're like, hey... And he's like, no, I refuse because I'm evil. And it's like, okay, I'll reach out to Vanna then. He reaches out to her and she says, no, because I refuse to believe you. Whatever. This then leads to them going down. And by the way, the gas is a super easy fix. I just want to make that very clear. So they go down. And Kirk's strategy... <laughs> Actually, I, I do kind of like Kirk's strategy. He, he, he locks them in. And she's like, no, we'll die. And his response, oh, oh, we can actually die from something we can't see? I'm surprised at you. Since she made the earlier comment that, you know, how can something hurt us that we can't see? Anyways, then he has, you know, dude face beamed in. And then they descend into savagery. And then we have another fight. Now, I know they wanted more action. Allow me to pro professionally say that this last fight sucks. Not because it's a particularly bad fight by Trek standards, but the whole point is at this point, both men and ostensibly the woman as well, are so mindless and violent that they should be savage, is the word I want to use. And I don't mean that in any kind of insult. I mean, you know, just clawing, ripping each other, roaring inhumanly as they fling themselves at each other. I would completely have redone this fight, possibly use nothing but stunt doubles if I have to in long shots, to really show how these two men are actively trying to rip each other apart with their bare hands. No joke. I think that would have severely helped what is otherwise a fairly tepid climax, because then they're they're just they're just like they're doing the same thing they always do when they fight on Trek, and there's no savagery there, and that destroys any possibility of the gas being something I could believe, which then of course leads to my point: if you wanted more action, why didn't you bother to make the action good? You don't need more money to have the actors act more savagely in a scene where they're fighting, or the stunt doubles if you want to go that route. Do one long shot. Do some dubbing, maybe. <laughs> you know, just just, 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 just,
But no. No. Instead, what we have is a boring, tepid conclusion to a bored, tepping, tepid episode. And it doesn't actually even solve anything. We, we've agreed to give them the gas masks, and we get our frickin' thing, Xenite, in order to go help the planet that's gonna die in three hours. And... <sighs> then we move on. The end. What the crap episode? This is absolutely going on the skip list for me. If I might be so bold, though, and this is going to sound like a really weird thing to say, I don't really blame anyone involved in the production cycle for this one. All three writers, and even the producer, were trying to push out the best episode they could, but under the severe limitations they were under, and the fact that none of them really properly coordinated or worked with each other, in short, there was no writer's room or team or production office, whatever you want to call that, what we had is four people effectively working on their own episode, and this is the result. Also, apparently, there was in the original script, it was the cloud miners, you know, as in in the, in the cloud, which I kind of like cloud minders better because, you know, it gets across how airheaded this episode is. I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'm sorry. I know I'm being pretty negative. We're at the end of season three. What do you want from me? I'm going to be as honest as I always am with you. So I hope you will be honest in turn in the comments section. I'm dreading it if I'm being completely honest. But I do hope you're honest nonetheless, and I will see you next time.